welcome to the second episode of our podcast, She Belongs. I would like to thank Dr. Gerardo Carino for joining us in this episode. He is the director of the intensive care unit at the Mer- Miriam Hospital in Rhode Island and the assistant director of graduate medical education at Rhode Island Hospital. He is also an associate professor of medicine at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and a clinician educator. We are thrilled to have Professor Kern in this episode and to delve into ICU and trauma response with patients of violence during COVID-19. Um, hello, Professor Carino. Um, I would like to start with a question. Knowing that you have encountered one of the first cases of COVID-19 in Rhode Island, how was the ICU at the Miriam Hospital during these hard times? And what was the role of trauma response in a time when no one knew the specifics about COVID-19, including symptoms in detail, how contagious this is, and patient care? Thank you for having me. I'm really, uh, really uh, thrilled to be helping along with this. And it's a really important topics that you're all addressing here. And uh, it was a really difficult time in uh, February and March of uh, last year. Um, we had, uh, as, as you mentioned, one of the first patients in Rhode Island who, who required ICU care uh, ended up in the Miriam Hospital in Providence. And um, we, we were hearing things about things. We had colleagues in, in Europe and in Italy who had already been going through some really bad cases. And so we knew about, um, obviously we knew about this terrible respiratory illness that was spreading across um, obviously first China and then, uh, then Italy and Europe. And, um, and certainly people weren't doing well. Uh, so this, this all came to us with a lot of a, uh, a story ahead of it. I mean, this, this didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, this, it was happening very quickly, but it did come to us with, with some knowledge and some, of, uh, some concern about what, what was coming towards us, but we didn't know much, right? And so that's really what made things really terrifying for everyone. I do remember everyone uh, with our first patients um, being very concerned about our own personal uh, protective equipment. No one really knew exactly how things were transmitted. Was it was it touch? Was it respiratory? Was it droplets? Would would a filter work? Would a would a would a, a face mask work? Would that be adequate? No one really had the clear answer. You know, how long could you spend in the room with the patient without great risk? So there was a lot of um, uh, fear and concern among the physician staff, the nursing staff, and the rest of the the hospital there. Um, including to the point where a number of people really backed out of caring for the patients at first. I mean, no one really knew uh, what the true risks were. Um, and um, and it obviously it, it, it expanded from there. Obviously we, we gained some more information, but there's still a lot of unknowns. From what you told me, it seems like a very, very scary time since we knew like nothing about the disease as it was very, very new. Um, so as you may also know, we have been working at the organization, which is called Global Initiative to End Gender-Based Violence. And there we have realized that during this pandemic, the gender-based violence cases also dramatically increased and also at the state of Rhode Island due to stay-at-home orders and many other factors because of the pandemic. Looking from an emergency responder's perspective, what are your thoughts on the role of trauma care in gender-based violence cases? I think that um, as a result of this, we have great responsibilities as caregivers, as healthcare providers, whether you're a physician, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, whatever whatever care you're providing. So we have these great responsibilities, but it's 
amplified in this in this time period of a pandemic. It's also amplified in this time period for people who are vulnerable, whether they're children or people who might be uh, enduring gender-based violence at home. And it's things that um, um, it just it further increases the responsibility that we have on our shoulders. And, and, and it, these are heavy weights that we, we have and you know, in addition to all the other responsibilities that we have. So it is something that um, we have to remind ourselves with, it's, it's not just, 10 COVID patients that we have in the intensive care unit, which has been very common, each, each one of them has their own individual story and each one's got their own individual vulnerabilities. And someone may be, more gender-based violence may be important to one patient and less of an issue for someone else, but we have to be able to address that for everybody. And, and uh, you know, we can't let our fear of this pandemic and our, our uncertainty about this pandemic get in the way of our ability to take care of these patients. Thank you so much. Um, so this brings us to my next question. Um, due to COVID-19, uh, we are all wearing masks covering our mouths, which can sometimes be a little bit obstructive for our in-person interactions. And we are trying to socially distance ourselves from other people. And this can naturally alter doctor-patient relationships and the trust in between. Um, as a doctor working in the ICU, Throughout this pandemic, how did you make sure that you maintained this trust? Did you have to change something um, in your doctor-patient relationships? How was it different than before? We, we've had to take into account a number of different things. One, with regards to the mask, um, we've graduated to different types of masks. And there was one type of mask that we used for a very short period of time that was excessively obstructionist and, and excessively in the way and we very quickly learned that that was not going to be appropriate it may have been it may have been providing us appropriate safety to the caregivers but it really wasn't working at all with the patient care relationship it was just this very large device that was totally in the way of everything so we have we have to recognize that you know we have to find something that works from us both a safety point of view and a uh, patient care point of view. And we've settled down on some other types of masks that seem to be a little bit better. Um, and then we have to take advantage of different types of technology and you know, hospitals and, 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 and uh, the state government's been supportive to sort of help us get some additional equipment that we could use. Some of it is much better at uh, interpersonal communication. We have some, uh, some uh, devices that are this personal protective equipment that really leaves your face visible. Uh, which is so much better for, uh, for, for for this type of interaction, and then we've gotten a lot better at using technology as well. We've provided, um, uh, you know, making sure we, we've we've gotten a lot of iPads and, and and telephones for the patients who are able to communicate to both communicate with their families and with us a lot more than we had otherwise done previously to previous to this. We really try to keep a connection for these patients, whether it's to us or their family, uh, because it is so challenged. Thanks a lot. So elaborating more on what you said, um, regarding the beginning of the pandemic, like around March and April, how was this doctor-patient relationships when there was no proper PPE or those technology readily available to the patients? I absolutely do think it did suffer at that time. And we, we learned from it and, and continue to improve. I mean, certainly with patients who are in the ICU um, who um, were communicative, um, we tried to maximize things and spend time with them. Our nursing staff frequently would spend a lot more time in the room than the physicians would. And uh, they were wonderful and really made very, very, really close connections uh, uh, with patients. And uh, there's some great personal stories that you could, you, you could hear about the nursing and the patient responsive you know, relationships. Uh, physicians would try to just try to 
at least my take on it would be to be very supportive, very empathetic, also uh, instill some level of confidence that we're there doing our best to try to care for the patient, even though we weren't 100% sure what we were doing sometimes. Uh, and we've evolved with things as time has gone by. And I think that's been very important. Um, separate from the patient, certainly if the patient is not able, was not able to communicate, we kept very close relationships and communication with the patient's family, uh, caregivers and family. Uh, that was really um, one of the major, major changes of this. There is like every day we do some sort of communication with the patient's uh, decision maker or closest family member. And if we make an appointment for it, we would keep that appointment. If we missed that appointment, we'd have to call, we'd call them back to make another appointment. We'd sort of, we'd absolutely keep our promises with regards to what communication we had because we really had to build that trust uh, with both the patient and their family. Thanks a lot. It definitely seems like a great way to establish patient-doctor relationships during these times. Um, so for domestic and gender-based abuse victims, especially cis-trust is a very big issue. How did you maintain this doctor-patient relationship while wearing masks and keeping that six-feet distance? Was it different than before? Was it harder? Is this a barrier between you and the patient? And is this barrier a barrier that can be overcome. It's it's it was it's an additional barrier and it's something that we've had to address. I mean, I could think of a specific patient and an anecdote where we had this uh, uh, woman who had severe COVID disease and unfortunately she had ca ca caught it from her. She suspected she caught it from her husband, uh, who had been very abusive actually, and she was in the hospital and didn't it really was very clear with us. And she she did an excellent job with her clear communication. This was not a mystery. Uh, she told us that uh, she was um, not happy with how this had gone. She had gotten this from her husband. He had been abusive for many, many years, and this was going to be her opportunity to get away from this whole situation and not be involved. So she didn't want to communicate with them. She identified a different patient, a different uh, a family member to be her primary contact to communicate with. And she also told us that she had some difficulty with male nurses and male physicians. Um, so certainly we did our best to sort of... Um, 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 meet that and, and provide her with a female physician, a female, excuse me, nurses for the most part. Um, we don't have as many, my, most of my colleagues are male. I have one or two female colleagues as physicians in the ICU right now. Um, so after a few days, I was able to develop some trust with her. And I, I did when I transitioned to my partner, I, I went in with him and I said, introduced him and really tried to build this, build this bridge of, of trust because while uh, obviously we are all doing our best, it's incredibly important to to, to um, you know, meet the patient where they want to be met, uh, but we also have to do what we're able to do as well. Uh, and, uh, and she was very understanding of that. And I, 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 at least she said she was very understanding of it. And I, I believe she was. Thanks a lot. Um, so for trauma patients and especially gender-based violence cases, has there been spikes in violence and eventual need for critical care in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic? Or do you think people were staying at home though they had severe injuries because of the scare of catching COVID-19 in the hospital. Was this even the case and how can this be handled? It's been really well documented both locally and across the country that people have kept away from hospitals and uh, we could hypothesize that it's because of fear of catching COVID-19. And I think that's probably one of the main reasons why they've stayed away. Uh, I don't know if there's actually been someone who has critically asked that question, but it's 
to me, it seems pre pretty clear that's the major reason. Uh, pediatrics cases have gone down dramatically. Our local, our local pediatrics hospital, Hasbro Children's Hospital here in Providence, their, their volume in the emergency department has gone down dramatically. And I'm sure children are still getting sick. I'm sure that they're, they're still needing care, um, but uh, people are very concerned about uh, coming in. So this has really, um, uh, this, there, there have been, and we've also witnessed a number of late presenting patients uh, unfortunately, in the in the intensive care unit right now, people who you know seem like they they were aware of disease pr progressing a little bit uh, all, all, for a while, but they stayed home and progressed later, both with regards to things like um, myocardial infarctions for heart attacks, uh, um, it's different in other infections that they've just tried to stay away from. So unfortunately, uh, this has been a major issue. And uh, there are uh, really important, I think, for hospitals and us as caregivers to provide outreach to, uh, to, to the public to encourage them to come in as needed, obviously. Um, um, it's, certainly, it's going to be uh, more harmful to stay home if you've got a real issue that needs to be addressed. addressed. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think this is definitely important, especially in the cases of myocardial infarction or some severe conditions when people are trying to stay away from the ICU or a hospital in general to kind of stay away from COVID-19. But it has some more severe consequences as a result. Um, so I want to mention the role of empathy. Um, what is the role of empathy as a first responder, especially during the pandemic, and especially for the gender-based violence cases? How can a first responder find the balance between emotions and rational decision-making, knowing that nothing is certain in these times, and it also creates a very high emotional burden? I mean, this has absolutely been a difficult and emotional time for all the caregivers. Um, unfortunately, the, the mortality and the long-term morbidity of the severe COVID cases, a lot of the patients that I've taken care of in the ICU is high. Um, we've gotten a number of patients through severe disease, but unfortunately, uh, a large number of patients have passed away, uh, including um, you, there have been you know, some short periods of time where we've had a number of patients who passed away. So um, there have been many days where I've had tearful uh, team members in, in our group, whether it's physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists. And uh, um, I think the most important thing for empathy with, for, with regards to the healthcare team is uh, for that we're all there together in this, in the same boat. We understand this and we do step away a lot of times and say, listen, we need to step back from this right now, discuss what we're, what's going on, where we are right now. And a, a lot of people don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, right? And it's, it's very difficult because um, uh, it's something that uh, feel like this is relentless and it's been going for so long and it just continues to go. And certainly I think the vaccine that has come out now and most of our care team has received uh, at least the first dose of their vaccine and many of them have received the second dose of the vaccine as well. This is a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel and, and uh, providing everyone a little bit of optimism and hope for this. And, uh, and, uh, it, it, and it's definitely sorely needed because it's, it's been a really difficult time for everyone. Um, yeah, I definitely agree. So this brings us to my next question. So according to the data presented and the current course of events, and from what you told me, it seems that we will continue wearing masks for the upcoming months, maybe a few years, and maintain our six feet distance and socially distance ourselves from other people. And you also mentioned that the technology is helping a lot with the patients and helping them to see their families, 
to see their kids, their parents, and their friends. And there are some new PPE which are helping us to kind of、um, get closer with the patients, and they are enabling them to see our faces. So I want to know and ask you that: Is the ICU care changing permanently as a result of this pandemic?、Um, many things in our aspects of our life are changing permanently as a result of this pandemic, and I think that、uh, healthcare and ICU care is just one of them.、Uh, simple things with regards to、um, not simple things, major things with regards to. Design of a unit, flow of a unit. How how can we access uh, uh, an intensive care? The physical space,、uh, single bedded rooms versus double bedded rooms. There there may be no such thing as a double bedded room moving forward anymore.、Um, and and you know, having patients all in in single rooms and having that equipment and having access to patients where we can we can get there safely.、Um, We had to、um, permanently install、uh, a number of、uh, air filtration filtration systems in, in every room to make sure that uh, uh, that that met that、uh, that safety standard. And、uh, all of these things are permanent. I mean, we're not going backwards at this point. Where, where all these things have been instilled into into us.、Um, and I think that、um, with regards to masking and、uh, PPE and all those things,、um, certainly before all this, we would talk about.、Uh, Um, universal precautions and universal precautions of taking care of patients used to be, you know, washing your hands before going into every room and making sure that everything was clean. And if they had a transmissible disease, you know, wearing gloves and sort of、uh, going along those lines. But obviously now our concept of what universal precautions is is probably evolving as a result of this, and we we may not go back from gowns and gloves and PPE.、Um, I'm not. I'm not convinced that we're. It's settled yet. I'm not convinced that we've finalized where we're going to be with that in six months, a year, or two years.、Um, but I, I think a lot of these changes are going to be permanent. Yeah, I think so too. Thanks a lot. And my last question is: During this pandemic, especially around March and April, there was a big uncertainty, and I would like to say that there is still that uncertainty. We don't know it. Everything about this disease, and back then we didn't fully know the symptoms, the course of the disease, and how contagious COVID nineteen is, as I previously mentioned.、Um, so during these times and your experience at Miriam Hospital during these two months and maybe after, how did you handle these complex emotions of being a first responder during a deadly pandemic while also protecting yourself? Again, very difficult. I think that um, the um, There was a lot of stress and emphasis on、um, healthcare workers' safety and, and providing safety, which obviously was very important.、Um, we tried different devices and different shields and different、uh, mechanisms to try to minimize, you know, contact with people while we were still able to provide the same level of care. And all those things evolved, and some things worked well, and some things didn't work well. For example, someone developed this glass shield to use to intubate people, and、uh, while it You know, was probably helpful with regards to maybe minimizing some contact. It technically it got in the way a little bit, so we think that it, the patient care was probably affected by it. So we really moved away from it. So,、um, you know, everyone was worried about it. I was worried about it. it would go would go straight home and、uh, you know、uh, change you know change and take a shower right as soon as you got home before con you know before interacting with anyone and having your family and your children at home. Uh, was a really stressful thing, and、uh, you kept away from them as well,、uh, just like a, a lot of other people in the world. And uh,、um, it's um, 
you know, we didn't just socially distance from the outside world, that people socially distance from their own families, right? And uh, it was it was it was really difficult. And uh, again, things like the vaccine being available does potentially um, provide some light at the end of the tunnel. But you're right, how long is this going to go on for the masks and the PPE? Another six months, another year, another two years? We are quite possibly and and probably. Thanks a lot. And my very last question is, we all had some events that basically changed our way of thinking about the pandemic. And I want to ask you if during these emotional and hard times, if you had any of those events that you said, oh, I'm so happy that I'm a doctor or, oh, I'm so happy that I am working in the ICU. I think that, I think that just a prolonged period of time of being very close to your capacity. And, you know, this phys- there's, there's like your physical capacity to do work, and then there's your emotional and, and, and capacity to do work. And, and we've been very close to our physical capacity to do work for a long period of time right now with regards to staffing numbers and people coming in. And obviously we have to provide 24 hours a day care for these patients. Um, but then the emotional capacity kind of goes up and down, you know, and some, some days you're doing better than others in your, in your emotional state and some days you're doing worse than others. And just those few days, and they've been a, quite a number of them, where we've had some major successes, you know, extubating someone uh, who, who was on the ventilator for two weeks with COVID-19 and having talked to their family for two weeks and, and talking to them for the first time after extubating them. It's just such a, a positively emotional feeling for the team and the staff. I've, I've, I just mentioned, you know, staff and everyone crying. Well, they've cried for, for joy as well uh, during these last few months. And, and there's been a lot of those cases and hopefully moving forward, we're going to have more of those and, uh, and less of the Less of, the, less of the tears for, for losing a patient. Um, Professor Carino, thank you for all of your inputs and especially for agreeing to be our guest. This brings us to the end of our episode of She Belongs. I'm sure our audience will learn a lot from this episode. Professor Carino, we hope to see you again soon and thank you so much for everything. You're welcome and thank you so much for inviting me and, uh, and, and uh, wish you luck with uh, continuing on this important work. Thank you.